0: studying in the book of Philippians, and we actually went over this passage, but we set it a little bit more in context. This morning, we're going to open it up and look at it in terms of what the text is saying, kind of a bigger picture look at this passage, and we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And if you would like a Bible, there's, we provide Bibles here, so there's a Bible on the seats beside you if you want to turn in one of those um it'll be on page 980 page 980 and 981 if you want to follow along in the text now easter easter what do you think about easter what comes to your mind i know for me growing up cuz i grew up in a non-christian home it was all about the mysterious creature known as the easter bunny right And Easter bunny would show up at your house and he would give you candy and you had these baskets and it was, you know, that green grass and those little plastic eggs. You know, they're a lot cheaper than they were when I was a kid. Today they just break apart. I noticed that uh, in the last several years how cheaply those things are made. But that was what Easter was about. It, It was about gathering with Family. Sometimes it was about suffering through those family gatherings because those ants would come up to you as a little child and pinch your little cheeks and go, wow, how much you've grown, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, what else am I supposed to do, right? That's what we do is we grow or maybe it's the food, I still remember my grandmother's house. We would have this smorgasbord of food, and my mother's family was g- very large, kind of like our family is now. But it was a large family, so with all these people that I really didn't know very well milling around and eating and watching, you know, games on uh, the TV and whatever else. It was just amazing. And then those egg hunts what about those egg hunts? I mean, all these people gathering eggs. I can't remember if I told you a story. I think I told it a couple years ago. So one time they had a community egg hunt in, in my neighborhood. And a friend of mine, which we got in trouble quite a bit, we went and hunted all the eggs before the event opened up. <laughs> and we came home to, to his house and we had these baskets filled with eggs and his dad looked at it and he said, what are you doing? Where did you get those? Well, we went down to the egg hunt and he goes, son, that egg hunt hasn't started yet. You're going to take every one of those eggs. You're going to hide them again. Now the children probably had it easy because we didn't hide them that well. It's like throw them in the grass here and there. I'm telling you, it was awful. All that we come to when we think about these things as people um, we have to still ask the question what is Easter about? There are many cultural thrills that uh, surround Easter. Easter is called the most important and oldest festival in the Christian church. Easter, then, really and truly is about the glory of Christ and how his glory should envelop every aspect of our lives. So as we come with that mindset, let's open up our text this morning, and let's look afresh at that old, old story that should be forever new in our hearts and in our minds every single day. Let's look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, as Paul reminds us of Resurrection Sunday. Verse 5, and I'm going to start at the end. Christ Jesus... Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the reading of God's Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your precious Word to us. May it remind us truly of the resurrection of Jesus. May it capture our hearts. May it draw us to Your love and Your everlasting glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, Easter is about the glory of Christ. And His glory should envelop every aspect of our lives. To unpack that, we want to look at three things in this passage. We want to see, first of all, that cr- the Christ that came. We want to see the Christ that was cursed. And then finally, we want to see the Christ that was crowned. And so first of all, let's consider the Christ who came. The Christ who came. Verses 6 and 7. Alec Mortier rightly points out that the story of the cross of Christ is told in each of the following gospel accounts, and the meaning of the cross is preoccupying the theme of the epistles. However, this passage itself uniquely unfolds the Christ from the perspective of Jesus The one who was crucified. And it allows us to actually enter into his mind, if you will. So who is this Christ? What were his motives in coming? What was important to him? What were his objectives? Look again at verses 6 and 7. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He came, but before we get to the marvel of His coming, the question that we have to ask is why? To understand this, we must go kind of beyond this passage, and actually beyond the latter a little bit, and and, and develop it from the context of the whole of the Bible. We must go back in the Bible to Genesis, and we read there that God created The Scripture says that He spoke and it was. He created the entire cosmos and He fashioned the world into just the shape that He desired. With all its amazing details and its intricacies and its beauty, you can see it. It's wondrous, isn't it? He also made us. God created people who were something like Himself and He put them in charge of the world to rule it, to care for it, to be responsible for it and to enjoy all its beauty and goodness. He appointed humanity to supervise and look after the world under his authority, honoring him and obeying his directions. However, when we flip over to Genesis chapter 3, another voice enters into the garden. The voice of the serpent, the devil, the evil one. Essentially, when you break down what happens here in the dialogue between the serpent and Eve, he persuaded Eve and Adam That God was not good. That's what he does in the passage. Read it. God is not good. He's holding out on you. And neither can his word be trusted. Sadly, our first parents believed the serpent over God and turned away from God in rebellious, self-sufficient attitude. And this is what the Bible calls sin. Now, in today's world, we don't like to use that term in our culture very much. It's almost like someone pointing a finger and saying, you sinner. But we have to look at it from a different perspective. We're all that way. We're all that way. We're all rebellious. We're all self-sufficient. And what we see when we turn in the passages of Genesis is the reality of that unfold before us. You see murder. You see strife. You see hardship. You see hunger. You see... You see pain. You see untruthfulness. You see people being taken advantage of over and over again. You not only see that in the passages of Genesis, you see that in the world that we live in today. Just over the last month, think about the different things that have come up that point to this. One of my favorite ones, and maybe you saw the little video of the... the, He's a school principal, and I think he's in Georgia. But he's talking about, you know, all these, these people that have tried to buy their kids into college. And he goes through and he says, we can't trust Aunt Becky. You know, the lady that was Aunt Becky in, in the TV show of the 80s. You know, we can't trust her. We can't trust the aunt in Full House. Because she'll lie and she'll cheat and she'll do these things to get her kid into college. And you look at it and you go, Isn't it true? But look, don't point your fingers at Aunt Becky. <laughs> when I watched the guy's video and he started talking about the reason why Aunt Becky did this is because of this and this. And then he started pointing out all these things that parents do. And I thought, I'm guilty of every one of those things. And that's the point, isn't it? We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all that way. We see that we act like little gods with our own little crowns competing and biting and and striving with one another. And resulting in the pain and the misery and the suffering and the injustice that we see in the world around us. It's so easy when we read something um, that we don't agree with, you know, to just make a judgment about it. We may be right, we may not be right. Ultimately, who is the only right one about it? God. So where do you see the pain and the misery of this world? It's all around us. That is the situation we're in. But as Genesis continues to unfold there in chapter 3, there's more to it. There's something else because God in His great love and mercy and grace did not leave us to suffer the consequences of our sin. When the time had come as the Scriptures unfold as promised in Genesis, as promised again a little bit later in Genesis to Abraham, and and, and promised to Noah, and promised to Moses, and promised to David, there's one coming who's going to set it all right. And in the fullness of time, He sent His own divine Son into our world to become a man. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus came to save us from the mess that we're in. I mean, folks, think about it. Think about the promises. Think about every election cycle. The promises. That never go anywhere. Never. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. So turning back to our passage now, notice in the, at the marvel of his coming in verse 6. He was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you see what this actually does here? This passage written thousands of years later actually points us back to Adam. Why? Because in Genesis, man that was created in God's image, after his likeness, he sought equality with God. The serpent suggested in the temptation, you will be like God. And she took of the fruit and she ate. However, Jesus here did not count equality with God to be grasped. Even though he was and had always been God. What does the text say? On the contrary, he renounced his status to which he had every right and he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Hendrickson lays it out this way. Think about it. He gave up his status in heavenly glory. He became despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He gave up his riches, uh, poor, born in a stable, and did not have a home, no tomb to be buried in, etc. He gave it up to become a man. He gave up his independent exercise of authority, and he became a servant. He became the servant, even though he was a son. Now I want you to think about that just for a moment. Can you ever imagine seeing the Queen of England out on the streets picking up trash in England? No. And let me tell you something. If one of you were king or queen, you wouldn't either. You would go, you get out there and get that trash. I'm the king, I'm the queen, I'm in charge. But not Jesus. Let that soak in. Now, you take that Queen of England illustration there, which is that compared to the glory of God. You think about it. The glory of God. Jesus who said, let there be light. And there was. Let there be this beautiful people. And there was. Like that. He gave it up. He gave all that up to show us that God indeed loved us and desired to rescue us from our sinful mess. We see the glory of Christ in His coming in humanity. Now secondly, I want you to see uh, the wonder of Easter deepens even more as Paul shows us that, uh, that this Christ was cursed. Cursed. So let's look at it in our second point that Christ was, a, was cursed. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so think of it just for a moment again. He's given up His status in heavenly glory. His riches in becoming a man. He's taken on the nature of a servant um, in, a humble, in a humbleness that he, what, that he exhibited. And yet Christ went further than that. The theologians point out that no one ever humbled Christ. He humbled himself. This self humiliation brought ultimate obedience, and that ultimate obedience brought death. Christ humbled himself to the extent that he was willing to die as a common criminal. Crucifixion was the most degrading kind of execution that could be inflicted on a man. It was the form of capital punishment that the Romans employed on foreigners and slaves. Those who would go to the cross in this way had committed heinous crimes. Awful crimes. However, Christ's death was unique. He died, but not for what he had done. He was sinless with no penalty to pay and yet he willingly laid down his life to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe. And I want you to think about it just for a moment. What an excruciating death it is to go to be crucified on a cross. As we see the the story unfold, Jesus is forced after being beaten and whipped and mocked and made fun of. He's forced to carry a six-foot wooden beam similar to a railroad tie atop his shoulder. He's just been whipped 40 times with a whip. I mean, he's ripped to shreds, and he's got to carry this beam. And as he's carrying it, there's blood dripping from him, and, and and the crowd's jeering him. They're jeering him, they're making fun of him, they're laughing at him, they're mocking him. I mean, there's a point where you just want to go, boy, what I'd like to see right now. Because, you know, that whole, you know, like an action movie, you want to see Jesus just go, this is it. <laughs> Legions of angels wipe everybody out. But then we'd all be dead, wouldn't we? So he suffers it, doesn't he? He carries the cross to the place of execution. And, and, and. Or he's, as he's carrying the cross to the place of execution, there's a place there where they normally crucify people, and there's a place in the ground where the, the cross would be set. And as, as he makes his way there, they grab someone to help him carry it because he can hardly do it. And once he reaches the site, his, his hands are laid out. Then they hammer, get the seven to nine inch nails into his wrists on each side. And then they bend his feet just slightly with his legs bent to the side and they nail another um, nail into his feet together as they push into the beam of the cross. And so while he's hanging there as they put him up, you can imagine the pain and agony of having the nails driven in and then the, the cross set up in places that bounces into the, to the holding hole and the, the jerk on the, 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 the hands and the feet and how awful that must have felt, the scraping of the back against the beam. It's pretty gruesome stuff, isn't it? And so then he, his, his, his arms and his legs are racked with pain As the body weight pulls it down, this chest is sagging. And what it does is it makes breathing a painful task. And so carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and he would push up with his legs so that he could breathe just to exhale. Can you imagine the pain of having to push up on those nails that are driven in your feet and pulling with your hands to breathe? Because that's what really kills you is the suffocation. Acid builds up. His muscles are growing rigid. And his feet are, are are sore. His hands are sore. His mouth would be dry from the fluid losses. His tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth. And all the while, men are continuing to make fun of him. <laughs> Call him names. Talk about how he said he was the son of God. Look at him now. And then... More than that, and I think this is the thing that and all the pain and all the suffering and all, the, all that, this is the thing that will get you. It's that God the Father draped a darkness over him. He separated himself from Jesus, the Son, in some way that's mysterious. And Jesus responded out of that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what we see here. Anyone who is hung upon a tree is cursed. That's what Galatians continues to say there. Jesus was cursed by the Father so that I would not have to be. So that you would not have to be. Do you see the glory of the Christ who was cursed? If this were a movie, you would think, man, the evil empire has won. If this were a movie, you would think, this is the real end game right here. You know what I'm saying? But this is not the end of the story. Following Jesus' humility and obedience, the Father did something incredible. He exalted him. So let's see Jesus in our final point. The Christ that was crowned. We'll look at verses 9-11. through Look at your text with me. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So following this great humility, that came from obedience by Christ, God the Father exalted him to his rightful position of honor and glory. From the passage, or this passage and many others, the Westminster Larger Catechism notes rightly that Christ's exaltation includes his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, and coming again to judge the world. So put yourself in the place of the disciples for a moment. Everything is gone. Everything that you had invested in for the last three years or so. Everything. And you're wondering, what, how did I get myself into this mess? What if they come after me? They're all hiding. Everything had been taken from them. The, it was like the life and the hope and the joy of everything was sucked out of the world. And they were just stunned. And then those ladies come running and they're banging on the door and in fear they open the door and they hear the words, He is risen. He is risen. You know the story, they, they all take off running, how could this be, this can't be and they get there and, and Peter runs in and he finds the burial cloth laying there and Jesus is not there. Jesus resurrected from the dead. On the third day, He rose again from the dead by His own power. And get this, it's in the very same body with which all its essential qualities had suffered. And it was truly united to His soul. So this is not just some make-believe thing. This is really Jesus' body raising from the dead. He was dead and and He raised. Nobody ever comes back from the dead. But Jesus, by His resurrection, He plainly declared Himself to be the Son of God, to have satisfied divine justice, to have conquered death, as well as to uh, destroy the power of Him who holds death. And in this, He became the Lord of the living and the dead. He did all this in order to justify by believers to make them alive in his grace to support them against their enemies to assure them that they too will be resurrected from the dead at the last day this is the hope and this is what paul talks about over and over again this is the hope that we have as christ raised from the dead so shall you I don't know if you ever stop and just contemplate life. Silas and I were coming to the church yesterday and I, I looked at him and I said, you know what, son? Life is interesting. It's long and it's short. It's hard and it's glorious. And the most important thing you can do is to believe in the Son of God. It really is the most important thing. Why? Because remember, life is long. Why is it long? Well, because it's it's hard. And and, and you suffer. And and there's pain. And there's agony. And there's all these things. And it's short because you're enjoying things. And you want to travel. And you want to go. And you want to do all these things. And and you realize you can't do it all. But guess what? There's eternity, isn't there? Have you ever thought about that just for a little bit? What will eternity be like? Now, I don't envision us, and I don't think the Scripture envisions us in the clouds playing little harps like the little angels that you see in toilet paper commercials. I don't see that. Because <laughs> what he says in the Bible is, I'm going to make all things new. What does that mean? Well, it has to mean, it's, it's, com- it's compelling to mean that, that he's going to make this all new. But here's the thing, you're going to wake up and you're not going to hurt. Your back's not going to hurt. You're never going to hear again, he's got cancer. Never again. Never again will you read in the paper, he was so young. It's hard to believe he died so tragically. Never again. Do you ever just get the feeling that things aren't right in this world? They're not. But on the other side, what God says in the resurrection is that they will be. They will be. After his resurrection, he appeared to the apostles a number of times. He talked to them. He ate with them. He communicated to them about the kingdom of God. And not only that, but he commissioned them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. Then the scripture tells us that 40 days after his resurrection, he visibly ascended into the highest heavens, triumphing over enemies. Folks, I can't describe it any other way, but this is Peter Pan. This is Peter Pan raising up into the heavens. Sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, all those little stories point to this reality. He raises up into heaven. Right there before everyone. And there in heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He receives gifts for mankind. at his Father's gracious hand. He raises the affections of his people heavenward. He prays for us. And he prepares a place. Until he shall come again. And sitting at the right hand of God. Exalts Christ. The God Man, the name above every man, He is advanced to the highest favor with God, with all the joy and glory and power over this uh, position. He has a, a, a place over all things in heaven and on earth. And so, finally, what we see in this, the crown, the Christ that was crowned. Finally, we see that He is exalted in His coming again to judge the world. He is coming again to judge. It is eminently appropriate that he who was unjustly judged, that he who was condemned and put to death by wicked men should be the judge of men and all angels in the end. He will come again as the king, the judge of all. Now, His coming again in the last day in great power will fully reveal His own and His Father's glory with all His holy angels, accompanied by a shout of command, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. He will judge the world in righteousness. Now, you have to think like that. He will judge the world in righteousness. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. It is most significant to realize that these words are from Isaiah 45, 23. These words, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, come from Isaiah 23. And these words are used for Yahweh, the the one who revealed himself to Moses. The one that um, the Hebrews would not write down His name. These words are used for Jesus. And so what the text is saying is this. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the Creator God, the King of kings. He is over all. Every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that He is Christ to the glory of the Lord. So the question I have for you is this, do you see Jesus? The Christ that came. The Christ that was cursed. The Christ that was crowned in exaltation. Whenever, and this happens, when I start thinking about these things, it always happens. I hear this man's voice in my head. This man was Pastor S.M. Lockridge. He was a famous black pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego for years. And he has a sermon called, My King. That's my king. And in that, he says, well, well, I wonder, do you know him? Well, yeah, I know. Do you know him? He's my king. I tell you, he's my king. Every time I look at something like this, that's what I hear in my mind. Do you know him? He's my king. He's your king. So here's the thing. Stop listening to the serpent who says, God's holding out on you. God can't be trusted. God's evil. He doesn't judge right. No, he's good. Do you see how good he is? His promises have been made true in His Son. Do you see what grace cost Him? Or do you see what love inspired Him? In human terms, Jesus is saying, get this children, listen to this. this is, you know how your parents will say, if you don't eat, your, you don't eat that, we're not going to do this. Do you know how they parents say that kind of thing from time to time? This is, what Jesus is, this is what the Lord is saying here. Jesus is saying, hey, eat your ice cream. We're going to Disney World. But it's way better than that, isn't it? For those of you who are believers, I want you to see a little bit of a bigger picture of this passage as it points to the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ on this Easter Sunday morning. This is what one author says. He says this, The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices, the pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. And so if you were paying attention when we first read this passage, you'll know that I didn't read the first part of of verse 5. I did that on purpose. I want you to listen to the context just for a minute, okay? So this is the full of chapter 2 leading up to verse 5. Listen to what he says, Paul says here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord with, uh, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Became the Christ, it was the Christ who came, it was the Christ who was cursed, it was the Christ who was crowned. Scholars debate whether Paul just pulled the hymn out and used it here, or if he pinned these words. But do you see what he's doing here? What he is saying is this: he is applying the humility and exaltation of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ to everyday life, isn't he? You wouldn't believe how many people have told me, I don't want to hear all that theology. That's what Paul's doing here. He's taking the big theology. And he is saying, this, apply this to your life. So how is he applying this? He is saying, be in humble obedience like Christ was. That's what he's telling the Philippians. But how else could you apply this passage? In light of the gospel, hold your tongue, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Control your anger, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Love your bully, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Treat others as the image of God rather than an object or someone to use, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't cheat others, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Pray for others which is yours in Christ Jesus. Trust Him in the pain that you're in, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Trust Him in the sorrow, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Trust Him in your work, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Trust Him in your relationships, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do not fear, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Receive His love His grace, His mercy, His help by the power of the Spirit, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How else might you apply the gospel of Christ's humiliation and exaltation to your life? How might His glory envelop every aspect of your life? Brothers and sisters in Christ, look to the cross and marvel at the extent of His great grace and love to you. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your... Love and mercy to us. Thank you for these truths that should ring in our hearts and in our minds. The great temptation will be to leave this room and to get to business and what we have before us. Lord, I don't think there's anything wrong with living life. But may we not give in to the temptation. To forget these words, to forget this truth, to apply this truth to our everyday, normal lives. Lord, I, for some reason in my mind, I think that these things are more important in the smallest of areas in our lives than they even are in the great ones. Help us to laugh and sing. And rejoice as that great removal of that stone happened. We hear the angels laugh and sing and rejoice. Help us to join them in that chorus. Not just today because it's Easter. But every day because you have risen. Risen. And because you've risen, it has changed everything. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.